All right, so it is January 17, 2011, in Chennai, meeting with teachers, Sunday school teachers, right? Okay. Saturday school teachers. Sorry, it's Saturday school teachers. I'm sorry. Huh? BPS teachers. BPS. BPS teachers. British Petroleum Service. <laughs> so that's Bhakti Prahlad School? Bhakti Prahlad Bhakti or Bhakta? Bhakta. Bhakta. I love the way you say it. How do you say that? My mouth won't do that. I'll have to train my mouth for a long time before we say Pranad. Yes. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to. This is something I have to say. I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer. No, that's that's all right. It's good for me. Of course, we have good posture. After some time, it will be So, like a slouch. Can you make it down a little bit? Just a little bit. Like this slouch. Yeah, okay. Very good. I don't know if I can answer all your questions. I think what I should do is. Charni Radha asked me to give a particular presentation, so I think I'm going to do that. And then I can also mention a few other things, and then we can have a little discussion, and we can try to get into your particular questions if you find that they weren't answered in the presentation. Is that all right? So I'm going to be looking, unfortunately, this was printed on a printer that hardly prints. So. It's very faint. Can you switch on the lights? Printing. It's very hard for me to see it. Okay, that's all better. So there's a few key things to get right when teaching children. We, We can make actually a fairly short list of what are the things that if you get those things right, everything else will work. I should say right now, so I don't forget, that those of you who are teaching very young children, or those of you who want more games for children, I suggest you buy a book that is called From the Very Beginning, and it's written by Nadika Chandrika Devi Vasi, who's a good friend of mine. And that's a whole program for how to teach young, very young children age two to five. From the very beginning. From the very beginning. So it's a complete programming guide for teaching very young children. There's also a book, I don't know if it's still in print, but it's called Krishna Conscious Games. It's a yellow color, small book. I probably have several copies in my storage boxes. And that may still be available. You could try on krishna.com. Another place you can go for activities is on our website where we have our learn to read books. So 
How many of you got the flyer about our books the other day? Were any of you there when we showed our children's books? Who was there? You were there. Anybody else? Sunday, Sunday. So, okay, just a few of you. So, uh, we'll give this out at the end. I'll go over this. But on the, if you go to the, the UK website, learntoread.co.uk, we have uh, one page there that says. Do you need something? It says free Hare Krishna ebooks. So on that site, we have some festival-based programs for children, four or five of them, and they have activities for ages two through eighteen, according to particular festivals, like based around this Bodhisattva Day or Gurum Chandra or Jaitanya Mahaprabhu, and then based around the five most potent items of devotional service. Chanting the holy name, serving the deity, serving the devotees, uh, going to holy places, and reading the Shastra. So we've taken like the Singhadev, the holy name in relationship to the Singhadev, Shastra in relationship to the Singhadev, Sadhu Sangha in relationship to the Singhadev, deity worship in relationship to the Singhadev, holy places in relationship to the Singhadev, and then we've divided that further into ages two to four and five to seven and eight to ten, I think, and eleven to fourteen and fifteen to eighteen, I believe. Uh, so we divide, and then we have general activities also, and we have many resources there. So that's a, a place that you can go. In addition, you can also go to the site isconeducation.org. Isconeducation.org. And there's a lot of materials and guidance there. So you can go to illuminationeducation.com Illumination I-L-L-U-M M like Mary I-N-A-T-I-O-N illuminationeducation.com and iskaneducation.org or on the Illumination Education, we want to go to the free Hare Krishna ebooks section. So there's a number of things that are really important in dealing with children. And if you just get even one of them right, you're really, you're really going to do well. So tonight we're going to look at one of them that is very rarely understood. It's something that we all know about. We deal with it in our daily life all the time. But very few people think about it and use it consciously. And this is something called triggers. You know what a trigger is? Like on a, on a gun, there's a, you pull the trigger to shoot the gun. You understand? If you don't understand, you will tell me, right? You won't just say, yeah, it's okay. Some people also call them anchors. You know what an anchor is? When you have a boat, if you want to keep it in one place, you put down a weight that keeps the boat in one place. So an anchor attaches a boat to a particular place, and a trigger releases a weapon. 
So I'm going to first tell you a couple stories about triggers, then we're going to discuss what is a trigger, what can act as a trigger, how triggers are discussed in the Shastra, and how we can use this science in our teaching. So we, many, many years ago, many years ago, 20, 25 years ago, we used to live in a, a city in America called Detroit. And the city of Detroit is right next to the border with Canada. You all know where Canada is? One devotee told me that when he's in India and he tells people he's from Canada, they just look at him and say, huh? Canada's the big country north of America. So there's like Detroit is here and um, Windsor, I think. It's right on the other side. So it was like a 20-minute drive to go from our house to Canada. And there was a much larger Indian community in Canada than there was in Detroit. So there were many good Indian stores, and we would get our spices and basmati rice in Canada. It was much closer. Prices were better also, because the Canadian dollar is a little different from the American dollar. So if we would go regularly. So one time I went just with my daughter. At that time she was pretty young, seven or eight, something like And we went to we went to two or three shops. And in one shop I said, I just have to go get one thing. Do you want to come with me? Or do you want to wait in the car? She says, Manta, I want to wait in the car. So I come back out of the store and she's hiding down in the in the car. First I came, I didn't see her. I was, oh, she's hiding and I, I, I opened the door and she was shaking. I said, what's the matter? And she said, Mata, there was some man walking around the parking lot and I think maybe he's one of those bad men who kidnap children. So I was scared. And she told me after that, if somebody just said the name Canada, she'd become afraid. So what happened is Canada became a trigger for fear. Now when I was about, starting when I was about two years old, I used to spend two hours every morning with my father. He would wake up at about five in the morning. I'd wake up maybe 5.15, 5.30. And we would spend until about 7.30. My mother used to wake up very late. She would wake up maybe 10 in the morning. She'd go to bed at 2 in the morning, wake up at 10. So I wouldn't see, when, once I started going to school, I wouldn't even see my mother in the morning before I left for school. But I'd always see my father. And he would spend that time telling me stories. I had a little doll named Ginger. And he had another doll named Ginger. So we had two Ginger dolls. And his ginger doll would tell stories to my ginger doll. And he would play games with me, and he would make me breakfast every morning. He didn't cook, but he would, we had a machine for making orange juice, not electric, one of these kind of machines. So he would make orange juice for me every morning, and he would usually make toast and put honey and butter on it, something. So he'd prepare my breakfast, he played games with me, and he did that until I went to university. From the time I was two until I was 17. 
So after, because of that, I always have a very pleasant idea about the early morning. So maybe 10, 12 years ago, I was dealing with one of my students who didn't like to get up early in the morning. And I was thinking, how can anybody like to sleep late? And then I realized that the reason I liked waking up early was nothing to do with Krishna consciousness. It was my father. So because I, I had a lot of love for my father and for me, I, I have an emotional association with the early morning of love and security and fun. So those are two examples of triggers. One, a place, or just the name of the place, and the other with a time. And one is a negative and one is a positive. The first one happened with one strong experience. The second happened with repeated weak experiences. So triggers are built in one of those two ways. If you have some very strong, one very strong emotional experience, either positive or negative. Or if you have repeated weak experiences, positive or negative, then something will become a trigger. So all of us have triggers. Everyone has things in their life that trigger positive or negative emotions. Now, this doesn't, it's not like you remember something. It's, and many times we're not even aware of it. I wasn't even aware for many years of how my father's dealing with me in the morning had created a trigger of the morning time. So what kind of things can be triggers? I talked about a place or the name of a place and a time. What else can be triggers? I'm asking you. Certain people. So certain people in our life. There are certain people, as soon as we hear their name, or as soon as we see their face, or as soon as we hear their voice, it triggers an emotional reaction, either a positive one or a negative one. So I have certain people, I just hear their name like, oh no. Right? And other people think, oh, so and so. So a person, what else? Situations? Certain kinds of situations, yes. Can you give me an example? Give me an example. For example, I was working in a drug addiction center. So that when we talk about the alcoholic, it triggers certain type of response within me. Like, though I feel compassionate for the person, but, but still uh, a fixed sort of emotions for the family members, for the person. So as soon as that, that's a word then, as soon as you hear the word alcohol. Okay, so that's not really a situation, it's a word. So the word alcoholic acts as a trigger for you. Okay. Certain things, if you see a particular thing... Okay, okay, yes, give me some examples. What kinds of things? Like, uh, if I see some uh, novels or something like that. Some what? Novels. 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 N-O-V-E-L. Novels, okay. And I... 
without my knowledge i just speak and i don't know that i'm doing and then later oh it is like on the bookshop or something like that i just keep it down and come ah okay okay certain books some other triggers some songs songs definitely songs definitely songs i some think places name definitely some places i i i'm pretty sure that almost everybody has at least one song that acts like a trigger usually more than one songs are very music can be a very powerful trigger so yes yeah, certain songs and and what happened was again that what happened was we were listening to that song during some time we had a powerful emotional experience or repeated week experiences and we that song triggers that emotion okay what else can act noise certain sounds noise from like good or some scratching so certain certain scratches yeah, well it's not just that you find them annoying it's that they they bring back a certain experience for you so that could be the case with certain sounds besides just music yes facial expressions certain facial expressions that's possible yes Oh, that's very interesting. Very interesting. So certain certain weather conditions. Actually, other people have told me that also. Other people have told me that also. And there's um, there's a very famous song in America called "I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas," and people have this idea that it's it's very good if it snows. at christmas time so why is that that's because when they were children they had some you know christmas time in america the children get lots and lots of presents so special food and family and and presents and they learn to associate that with the snow okay some other things that act as triggers certain pictures Environment. Hmm? Environment. Certain environments. Yeah. Can you give me an example? Yes, that's true. I mean, uh, my opinion. So, well, but you'd only, you know, when you say a spiritual environment, but that's only true if you have some actual experience there. In other words, it's not just a theoretical idea. A trigger is something that's very powerful. and it's it's not intellectual it's emotional so there certainly can be places like my daughter had canada as a trigger so if you had some strong spiritual experience in mayapur then mayapur would act as a trigger for you my question is whether it comes under triggers but sometimes the same thing comes again and I don't I don't know if that would be considered a trigger. Certain food is definitely a trigger. Definitely certain food. Smell definitely smells. Certain temples also when we certain temples. Oh yes. Definitely certain places. If you were in a particular place and had a very bad experience, somebody stole your money or somebody was screaming at you, or you were very sick when you were there then that place may become a negative trigger and the same way if you went to some place and
and you had a very positive experience, either spiritual or material, then that place will be a positive trigger for you. And you'll notice if, if a place is a trigger, if it's a positive trigger, you'll want to keep going back to that place, even if you don't keep experiencing the same thing. It's called Bangalore Benevent uh-huh. So that place has become a positive trigger. Yes, the Chicago temple is like that for me. And it's same with the negative. If there's a place where you had some very strong negative experience, you don't want to go back there. And even if the whole situation has changed. <laughs> when I was uh, teaching this one time, uh, this has happened on several occasions that devotees come up to me afterwards and say, oh, now I understand what's happening. Well, I had one devotee telling me, he, he was almost crying. He said, now I understand what my struggle is with coming to this temple. He said, the temple, this particular temple became a negative trigger for me because of certain things that happened here to me. And he said, I was always just feeling so guilty and so confused. You know, what's wrong with me? Why don't I want to come to the temple? And now I understand what's actually happening psychologically. So yeah, certain smells, um, something that smells like your mother's cooking, maybe a strong trigger or... Any, again, a trigger is formed when there's some something that we connect with an emotion. And it happens either with one strong experience or repeated weak experiences. So if every time I go to Govinda's restaurant, I have a really good meal and I go with good friends, it may not be a very strong experience, but if I have that experience 20 times, then pretty soon that restaurant becomes a positive trigger. Or I had a funny experience where I don't know if they do it like this here, but in America, in, by every house we have a box for the mail to come, for the post. So, where we were living for a while, you had to walk away from the house to go to the box, to the mailbox, to the post box. And every day I always wanted to go and get the mail. And I couldn't understand, one I didn't even think about it, but one time one of my children said, why does, why does Mata always like to get the mail? And then I realized that one time we got a donation for our Gurukula of $35,000. And it came in the mail as a check. And I was standing by the mailbox and I opened the envelope while I was standing there. I thought, what is this? And I opened and I saw there was all this money. And so I got a very positive experience. So going to the mailbox became a positive trick. Um, um, for most people, the most powerful triggers are smell and touch. Now, usually touch is not a trigger at all, but if you get a trigger associated with touch, it can be very strong. I heard about one husband and wife where one time they were in the car and they got in a big argument. And while they were having this argument, the husband was touching his wife's shoulder. And after that, for many years, she couldn't tolerate him touching her shoulder like that. If you touch your shoulder in the same place, don't touch me. 
and it took a long time for her to understand what was the problem. But those are the most powerful ones, touch and smell. I'm sure you've all noticed there are certain smells that bring on a strong emotional response from you. So there's also in this Shastra, uh, particularly in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, there's some description of triggers. They're called a stimulus. And the Sanskrit word is udipana. Udipana. U-D-D-I-P-A-N-A. Is this water for me? U D D I P A N A. So this is part of the science of rasa. Usually we think about rasas with Krishna as oh, there's five main rasas. We can be neutral, servant, parent, friend, or lover. But really, those five things are called the staibhav. There's five parts of rasa, not just staibhav. And one of them is called vibhav. And vibhav has two divisions, alambana and udipan. Alambana is, in other words, why do you feel, if I'm your friend, the reason I'm your friend is because of you. Does that make sense? I'm not just your friend. I'm your friend because of you. And I may be your friend because of your friends also. So things that awaken my friendship for you as first of all you, and then second of all your friends, your family, other people related to you. And then there's things about you that trigger or stimulate my feeling of friendship or my feeling of being a parent, or whatever it is. So some of these are mentioned by Rupa Goswami, like Krishna's qualities. We think, oh, Krishna's so heroic. Krishna's so strong. Krishna's so soft. Krishna's so beautiful. And when you think about Krishna's qualities, thinking about Krishna's qualities trigger a feeling of friendship, or a feeling of, this is my beloved. Krishna's pastimes. Krishna's decorations, his smile, the smell of his body, his flute, his horn, his ornaments, his conch, his footprints, his place, Tulsi, days like Janmastami, days like Akadis, so many things. He actually, this is just a short list. In the Bhakti Rasamrita Sin, there's a very long list of all these things that act as a trigger. We find, for example, there was Mukunda in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Lila that he was a physician, he was a doctor. And when he was attending the king, he was the royal physician. Someone was fanning the king with a peacock feather fan and as soon as Mukunda saw the peacock feather, it acted as a trigger. It triggered his feelings of love for Krishna and he, he went unconscious and he fell off the platform and the king said, well, are you okay? And when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu saw the ocean, it acted as a trigger. He thought, oh, here's the Yamuna. And he jumped in. And he saw a sand dune also. So Bhaktivinoda Thakur writes a, a very wonderful song about all of the things that trigger his love for Krishna. 
Now, in a sense, what we are supposed to come to in Krishna consciousness is that everything can trigger our love for Krishna. Now, Krishna says that he's the light of the sun. He's the tasting water. He's our, he's our air. Our, our, he's the prana in the body whenever we're breathing. He's the fragrance of the earth. He's the sound in ether. So if we meditate on that, if we start to associate these things with Krishna, then they can trigger that feeling of love and remembrance of Krishna. Similarly, the great devotees, they want to avoid certain people who trigger negative feelings and they want to avoid the demons first. So, I'd like to ask you for a minute, what is, what is all this stuff I've been talking about have to do with teaching? Because as I said in the beginning, we all know that there are triggers, although we don't usually think about it or talk about it. Sometimes we notice, oh, whenever I smell that, I feel love and warmth and I remember my mother's cooking. So how do you think this, this fact that, there, that each of us has some association, positive or negative, between certain things and our emotions. How do you think this has an effect when we're teaching? If we can give some similar triggers to those who are, whom we are teaching, I mean, some positive experiences, some positive triggers, so that they can continue in their Krishna conscious life. Yeah, so that's the goal. The goal is to consciously, purposely, deliberately create positive triggers for whatever we're teaching, Krishna consciousness, and if we're teaching something else. Can you give me some examples of how you think that this fact of triggers may be existing right now in your teaching environment? Okay, so there may, we may be having certain prasadam as a trigger. Now again, the prasadam will act as a trigger, certain prasadam, only if it's associated with some positive emotional experience. Now that might happen from the prasadam itself. It could be that the prasadam itself decides to reveal itself to the child and the child has some experience of ecstasy while eating it that has nothing to do with anything that you did. So it looks like to play all the time. stories about Krishna time and again so that they will have interest in Okay, I don't think I've, I've made myself clear. I'd like to know how do you think that this science of triggers is operating right now in your teaching? Okay, so that sometimes, certain, but it would be certain stories, or it might be story time. Okay, so if during story time or certain stories, the children experience great happiness, then then story time, Krishna story time, may become a trigger for them. 
How might we have some negative triggers operating in our teaching environment right now? I don't have to sit long time. <laughs> Tell me about a trigger. I had an experience that once I invited a Sanskrit teacher to the previous class and he was just teaching them basic Sanskrit things and the kids were all happy but the next week uh, a kid who was very regular and who used to be the first in coming, her mother called me up to say that she's crying and she doesn't want to come anymore. So when I asked why she says that uh, that she thought that that's going to be a test in Sanskrit the next week. And so she hasn't studied for it and that's why she didn't Okay, so Sanskrit became a trigger for anxiety. Okay. I, I, let, let me try to give Sue some more examples because I, I don't think I've explained it very well. So let's say a student is, is working in a coloring book and while they're working in a coloring book, some other student comes and says, that's not very good, and the student feels really terrible. So coloring might become a trigger for feeling depressed. They might associate coloring was feeling depressed. So that's an example of a trigger that's operating in a classroom. So they're just like some people hate mathematics. Why do they hate mathematics? Probably because there was some emotional experience connected with studying mathematics that mathematics became a trigger. Or like, I loved art. The reason I loved art is that I had an art teacher who was just wonderful. The classes were so exciting. So art became a trigger for that environment. Okay, can you give me some other examples of triggers that might be there? Yes. In some of our classes, we chat Hare Krishna hundred eight times. The little ones just, they are so sleepy. Then next time they hear about China, they don't want to go because they know it's boring. And exactly. Okay, that's a very good example. That's a very good example. So we've, we've had a lot of children in the Hare Krishna movement for whom chanting japa is a negative trigger. And memorizing the slokas also. Okay, so memorizing the slokas. So how would something become a negative trigger? If while you're doing it, what's happening? There's what? Okay, that's a good example. So if they get, if a person gets publicly humiliated, if they get publicly embarrassed and humiliated, then whatever was happening when they got humiliated may become a trigger. It may or may not, but it may be. So if they were say, saying slokas, then slokas may become a trigger. If they were writing on the board, then writing on the board may become a trigger. Whatever was happening at that time. A trigger is basically where we make a false association. That where the mind creates a false association between something and an emotion. Where we, we think, oh, you know, jalebis means love. Because our favorite auntie used to cook jalebis and she loved us very much. And so we associate like that. Or like uh, there's, a, there's a certain food I don't, really don't like. Kush kush. I don't know if you know what kush kush is. It's a European food. 
and I had this one auntie who I did not like at all. I just did not like her. And she would serve this. And I didn't like her house, I didn't like her, I just... So I, I created a false association. Do you understand? It's not real. It's not that, there's, that it's actually that learning chanting japa is boring. That's not true. But if our japa time is boring, the children will, japa becomes a trigger. Or I know, I know of one, um, one devotee who was born in Iskand. She's now probably about 40 years old. And she told me that she really has a hard time chanting japa because when she was little, if she didn't chant properly, the teacher would hit her. So as soon as she starts to pick up the japa beat, she feels afraid. Now, one of the things that, that I, I did once I understood about the science of triggers is I realized that we don't want to mix teaching and discipline. I, I realize you don't want to mix teaching and discipline. Because you have to discipline children. You can't, it's not, you can't avoid it. Impossible to avoid it. Children do things that are wrong and they need to be trained and corrected. That's just the way it is. But being corrected is, not, is never pleasant. Now, I, I really don't know of too many people who really relish being corrected. I mean, sometimes maybe a little bit. But even if you are grateful later, you're not usually happy at the time that you're being corrected. Especially if it's in front of other people. But I mean, even privately. Even privately. If someone tells me that I'm wrong about something, it stings. Right? Even if it's just something inconsequential, something meaningless, something not important. If someone says, oh no, Armila, that's wrong, it's actually like this. I feel a little, Ugh. My false ego doesn't like it very much. What to speak of if someone says, look, Armila, you really have this problem, this problem, this problem. <laughs> I don't like it. So you have to correct children, but they don't like it, and you don't want them to associate whatever you're teaching with that negative feeling of being disciplined. So once I learned this, in my classroom, I, ha I got two boards, I two whiteboards, and one of them I used only for teaching. And any time I had to correct the student, I walked away from that board. Do you understand? So, just like I'm sitting here right now. like that. Exactly like that. Do you understand? So now if I did it from here, if I said, oh, please don't talk now. So what I've done is I've contaminated this space. Do you follow? 
Now whenever she looks at me here, oh, maybe she'll correct me again. So I made a place in my room for corrections. I established a place in my room where I did not do any teaching from that place. And also it was very funny because that place became associated with, whenever I walked to that place, everybody started to behave. <laughs> it was very funny. So you know, I'd be teaching here, be doing it, I might teach you all over, but that is one place. And as soon as I'd walk to this one place, everybody's like, <laughs> and so after a while, I didn't even have to say anything anymore. I just had to walk to that place and look around. So it was very interesting. So that, I created a trigger. That was a negative trigger. I created a negative trigger. I created a negative trigger in that place. Uh oh, now we're in trouble. Who's in trouble now? What am I doing? And that kept my teaching place clean. So if I was using one place for teaching and correction, now sometimes this is very hard. I, I know whenever I'm giving a class, like on the Vyasa Sun, you, you know, you can't do that. You can't get up and walk around. And I, sometimes I do that. Sometimes I do get up and walk around <laughs> and write on the board. But, but not often, you know, one out of 300 times. But that's, that's one thing that I realized is that you want to, and this is true also for your temple room. Just like there's rules about a temple room, that you shouldn't, this one of the offenses in deity worship, don't chastise anyone in front of the deities. And I'm sure that that's one of the reasons. So if you have a place for japa, and a time for japa, please do your best that discipline doesn't go on in that place or at that time. Try to have your discipline go on later. If you have to discipline at that time, then at least go to another place. So you, you, you create a, a break. Sometimes what I do also when I'm teaching is I may sometimes switch roles. Sometimes I'm the teacher and sometimes I, I become like one of the students. If I start asking everybody, okay, now you give me your opinion, do you give me, I may, then I'll often move to the side. Again, if I'm giving a lecture from Vyasa Sun, I don't usually do that, but if I'm just in a, in a classroom, I'll move to the side. Or I'll sit down. If I've been standing up, I'll sit down. Sometimes I'll use sitting down for some kinds of teaching and standing up for other kinds of teaching. Or use different places in the room for different kinds of teaching. That really helps with behavior. The children know, okay, when we go to this part of the room, we do this thing. We go to this part of the room, we do this thing. It's especially important whenever you're giving exams to have an atmosphere of calm and confidence. So already exams cause stress. And you, as much as possible, you want to create a calm atmosphere. I had one student who did very well in her mathematics classes, but she was failing all of her tests. And her parents uh, were very disturbed. So at first I thought the problem was that she didn't understand the math. But I, I, 
So I was giving her extra time in Manifest. Every day after school we were staying one hour, one and a half, two hours. I was giving her what you call tuitions. In, in America, tuition means a school fee. We would call it tutoring. But anyway, I was giving her extra teaching help after school. And still, the, every time she took a math exam, she got a very poor grade. And finally, what I found out was that her parents were putting a lot of pressure on her math exams. And the worse she did, the more pressure they were putting on her. And not only her parents, her uncle, her grandmother, everybody. And I asked her, what do you feel like when you go to take a math exam? She said, I feel like a hundred eyes are watching me. And she just froze. So a math exam became a negative trigger. I even did an experiment with her. I put a math lesson in front of her and I watched her body language. Do you understand body language? Then I put the math exam and she went like this. So she saw the exam. So I did something which is too, too advanced. I can't teach you that. But I reworked the trigger. You, you can break a trigger and, and rework it. And I just, in a very simple way, what I did was I asked her, I said, so why are you becoming nervous? She said, because I'm trying to do well, I'm trying to focus. I said, is there any circumstance in which you, you focus and you also do well? And she said, yes, she was a musician. She said, whenever I'm going to perform on the violin or the piano, then I can focus, but I can also do well. I said, what do you do right before you play? She says, I go, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. So we had her do that before her mathematics tests. And that broke the negative trigger. So that's a very simple, it's not quite so simple, I'm, I'm simplifying it. But there are ways to break negative triggers. Uh, another example I can give you is I was counseling one husband and wife that became so disturbed with each other that their faces became a negative trigger. Now what happens is if when you have an argument with your spouse and all husbands and wives argue sometimes, not all, but almost all, 99%. I've met two married couples who never argued. But only two. Even Shiva and Parvati argue. Radha and Krishna also argue. So when this couple would get into an argument, they were looking at each other's faces, and the faces became a negative trigger. So, I, first of all, I told them, next time you argue, don't look at the face, just look at the feet. <laughs> but then we broke the trigger, I had them look away from each other, and I had them remember some time when they felt very loving towards each other. And not just remember it, I, I, they needed to feel it again. I had to bring back some loving feelings. And when I saw that they were, when I saw by their body language, that they were feeling very loving, I said, okay, now look at the face. So you, you can take something that's a negative trigger and by associating it with something positive, really positive. But you want to be very, very careful that whenever there's something that might be difficult as it is, like an exam, or, you know, chanting japa is one of the most difficult things that we ask children to do. And I've, I've thought about this a lot. And that everything else in Krishna consciousness has some element of material sense gratification. 
just like kirtan. So music is very pleasing, dancing is very pleasing, or prasadam, or all the other services that we do. You know, there's, there's something about them on the material level that's also pleasing. But with japa, that doesn't exist. There's, there's no sense gratification in japa. If there's either spiritual pleasure or there's kind of nothing. So therefore, it's very easy with getting with children chanting japa for it to become a negative trigger. You don't usually have to push children to participate in the kirtan or to take nice prasada or to color a picture of Krishna or to do other services. So especially with japa, one should be very careful that we don't associate force and pressure or boredom with chanting japa. And we're saying with slokas also this can happen, especially if they're doing just parrot recitation of slokas. I was at a school in India where the children could get up and recite so many slokas. And if I asked them what they meant, they, didn't, they were just saying sounds. They didn't know what they were saying. You know, it, just, it was basically meaningless. So these are the, the, if you really think about this, to anything that's very important that you want the children to have attachment for over a long period of time, you want to make an effort, a, a really conscious effort, to associate positive emotional experiences with those activities. And I'm convinced that this science of triggers is one of the reasons why in every culture there's festivals. That festivals create a very, generally, create a very strong positive trigger with the culture. For many of us, a lot of the reason why we're attached to our nationality, to our family's religion and culture is because of the festivals. That we basically, we associate, you know, being a Christian with getting gifts at Christmas time. And please make sure you look at the people walking around with the garland because it's very important. I mean, this is one reason we have big yearly festivals. You know, some very big positive experience that when you think about Krishna consciousness, you'll think about, oh, I went to the big Janmastri festival in Vrindavan. Right? It, it changes your whole idea of spiritual life. So you can see also about children coming back. You're talking about children's attendance. A lot of it depends on whether or not your school program acts as a positive trigger. I remember when our oldest son was about four, we were in a temple that had a a nursery program. It was run run by a brahmachari, surprisingly enough. I think he later became a grahasta, but at the time he was a brahmachari. Probably today we would not let a brahmachari run a nursery program. Anyway, the children loved that program so much. And they would wake up in the morning and they'd say, nursery, nursery, nursery. You know, and they would run to the nursery. So he'd really created positive emotional experiences for those children. 
So as soon as they heard the word nursery, it acted as a positive trigger for them. So you might want to really deeply think about what emotional experiences are my students having or my children having in my class or in my home? What emotional experiences are associated with kirtan, with japa, with taking prasadam, with learning slokas, with whatever we're doing? Are they positive or are they negative? Now, you can't control that 100%. There's, you're not the only factor in the child's life. There's what's happening at home, there's the other children, there's they may be feeling sick. I mean, if you go someplace and you happen to be sick when you're there, you may, that may develop a negative trigger. That actually happened to me. But, um, in 1986, we came to India for Chaitanya Prabhu's 500th appearance day. And that was the last time I had been in South India before now. It was in 86. And it was the first time we'd been to Mayapur. Before that, we'd been to Vrindavan, but not to Mayapur. And my husband and I both got very sick in Mayapur. Practically the whole time we were in Mayapur, we were just, we couldn't leave our room. You know, we basically couldn't leave the bathroom. And it didn't, it didn't create it for Mayapur, but it for, did for festivals. After that, I thought, I will never come to India again during a festival. I will only come when it's quiet. So this past Gorpurnima last year was the first time since 86 I had been in India during a festival. Because for me, festivals meant being sick. Does that you understand? So that's not under your control. If a child is sick or some other things happen, what, but at least what's under your control. At least what's under your control. And whatever negative things you do, sometimes you have to do negative things with children. I mean, you have to take away a toy or you have to tell them they've done something wrong. You want to do those as far as possible, separate from whatever it is you're trying to teach them, whatever activity, you know, if they're coloring, take them away from take them away from where they're coloring to another place. And then listen, Krishna Das, I don't like it when you take your crayons and you stick them in Ram Das's ears, that's no good. You know, if you want to color, you've got to make sure you use the crayons only for coloring can really hurt little Ram's ears and I don't want to hurt Ram's ears. So do you want to color or what do you want to do now? You tell me, you want to color or not? I want to color. Okay, what are you going to do with the crayons? I'm going to use them for coloring. All right, make sure you do now, okay? I want to see the crayons just on the paper or in the box, okay? Where do the crayons go? Paper or box? Paper or box, okay. And then you go back and you have them sit down. That, that clear? So it's away from the activity. Different place and if possible a different time. If you think about uh, Shastra classes, you know, often we take our children. I always took my children to the Bhagavatam class, but you want to make sure that it's interesting for them. You don't want Bhagavatam class to be a trigger for boring. So I would often talk to the class speakers and say, please remember there's children in the, in the room and gear your talk a little bit to the children. Okay, so we can talk about a couple more things before we break. 
Do any of you have any questions about triggers? How to find out those triggers? That already exists for a child? Is that what you mean? Or for yourself? Or what? Well, if you notice that a child reacts especially favorably or especially unfavorably consistently towards a particular place or activity or person, then you know you're dealing with a trigger. If every time you say, okay, everybody, let's do a drama, you have one kid who says, I don't want to do a drama. Then you probably have a negative trigger. Or if you have a child who says, when are we going to work with clay again? Then you probably have a positive trigger. But we cannot continuously do that now. Why not? No, if, if the children are triggered by some coloring or some drama, something like that, then we cannot, each class we cannot do the same thing. So we have different things in each class. Of course. So the time it will be difficult for that child to accommodate. Well, then you want to break the trigger, you want to restructure it. So if you already, if a child already has a negative trigger, then how will, how will you break a negative trigger? Do you remember? To connect something positive to it. Connect something positive to it. So that means a little thought. So what, what might be a really positive experience for this child? And then connect that with that activity. So in the middle of doing drama, maybe give that child a gift or give that child a hug or something. Do that a few times. And then, oh, while I'm doing drama, then maybe I'll get some burfi or whatever. You can restructure a trigger. Unless it's very serious. Even then you can do it, but that takes some expert. You know, if, if somebody was raped and beaten in a particular place, so it's going to take more than a sweet ball to break that trigger with that place. But that's if only if it's something very extreme. It can still be done, but it has to be done differently. According to my science, a part of the BP is, and you know, as a mother, I'm having a tough time to deal with him because he becomes more naughty. And when I discipline him, as you say, I contemplate his face. And then after the class, I try to explain to him. That doesn't work. No. But he repeatedly does it every week. And I don't know, it has become a negative trigger for him or for me also. How old is he? He's five years. You know, I, I've had two different kinds of experiences. I have three children. My oldest two children never had a problem having me as a teacher. And my youngest child always had a problem having me as a teacher. <laughs> I was never able to fix it. Never. He was never happy having me as his teacher. So, I mean, even now, he says, Mati, you shouldn't have kept teaching. And I would try to have other people teach him, you know, as far as possible. So some children seem to do well having their mother as a teacher and other children don't. I mean, it wasn't a difference with me. So, you know, what my policy was, was I pretended my child was someone else's child when I was teaching. But that would make it, that my other two children, that was fine. But for him, that would make him very angry. 
Yeah, and even now, I mean, he's 29. And, and, you know, we were discussing this last time I was there. And he said, when you were teaching me, you treated me like I wasn't your child. I said, yes, I did that purposely. He said, how could you do that purposely? <laughs> how could you purposely not treat me as your own child? I said, I didn't want to spoil you. So he still can't understand that, still. And he's a father himself. So sometimes some children have to be taught by somebody else. It did really, you know. Sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't work. So I don't think I can give you a formula. It really depends on the child. It really, really depends on the child. And then you just have to decide. I mean, what my son wanted is he wanted me to treat him specially. Like he wanted to be able to go in the middle of class because we would have a class in the house. And he wanted to be able to just go in the kitchen and get some juice. And I said, but if you get juice, then everybody should get juice. I only you get juice. He said, but it's my house. <laughs> Same thing. You. Try to get someone else to teach you. I was not able to solve that problem. He likes to play with the kids after the class. I give him playtime. But he is scared of Fridays. That every day when he gets down from the van from the school, he asks me what days. So Fridays become a negative trip. A, a day. I've not been able to figure out what I could have done differently with that one child. You know, I've, I've really thought about it. Should I have given him something different than all the other children? I don't know. That's what he wanted. He wanted me to treat him like my son, even though I was, you know, but I thought if I do that, then I'll be unfair to all the other children. And then he'll become spoiled. But it didn't, it didn't work. He doesn't like to be corrected when he's not, uh, when he's doing a mystery. He does the same thing, like what you say. He doesn't like to be corrected. Uh, when I'm, I'm totally, I don't know what to do. Well, my son's a very nice person now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he's a very responsible, moral, hardworking, balanced person. But, some children are just more difficult to raise, and especially if you're their teacher. I, I don't think there's just like, here's the answer. What I would suggest is don't allow it to keep going on like that. Do something. Either treat him differently, or arrange for someone else to teach him, or... I mean, what my son suggested to me recently, he said, you should have given me classes just by myself, away from everybody else. He was really strong with me recently. He said, you should have done something. You shouldn't have let it go on for so many years like that. So I would suggest do something. Maybe when you're teaching, your son can be your assistant instead of your student, and then give him his classes later. You can ask him also, what, do, what would you like to do? How would you like it to be done? I think I should have done more of that. I should have said, you know, how would you like me to solve this problem? 
and really sat down with him. What I was realizing recently is I didn't, I didn't take it that seriously from his point of view. I thought it was not so important. And now I realize it was important. I should have sat down with him and, and respected his feelings and said, I, you know, I can see you're really disturbed by having me as your teacher. And what solution would you like? And let's try to work out a solution. So I might try to do that. But I would definitely do something. But many times it works fine having your own child as your student. I think with my other two children it worked out all right because, well, for my oldest son, he had other teachers first. So he already had the idea that this is what it's like to be with a teacher. And with my daughter, I started being her teacher when she was two. And she just made the adjustment. With, with the child I had the problem with, he was a baby when I was teaching other children. So he was different. So for five years, I was treating him differently. All the children were my students, and he was the baby. And he did, did get special treatment. And then one day, all of a sudden, he didn't get any special treatment anymore. I think that was what the problem was. And he never made the switch. He never made the switch. I kept thinking, he'll, it'll, it'll happen, it'll happen. But never, never So whatever it is, if it's that child's personality or if it's just some circumstances, I really think in my case it was just a circumstance. Then please think of some, talk to the child, pray to Krishna. But I, I would urge you to take it seriously. Maybe you can make a list of ten solutions and ask him to make a list of ten solutions and find something that will... That will work for you. Is that all right? Oh, absolutely. Which is why I teach this. Because when, after learning about triggers, I realize that generally we're not aware. We're not aware either positive or negative. You know, you've created a negative trigger of Friday for your poor child. And that may last his whole life. It may be for the rest of his life. He hates Fridays and he's afraid of Fridays. I'm serious. There was um, this one American president whose mother had 14 children. He was one of 14 children. And his father was also president, not, not the Bushes. It was uh, John Adams and John Quincy Adams. So what his mother did is she made one hour a week. for Each, each child got one hour a week. And this boy had Thursdays between 6 and 7 was a time his mother was just with him. And he wrote about this. He wrote his whole life. He always looked forward to Thursdays at 6 o'clock. So, you know, you might think about maybe doing something special on Fridays with him. Maybe Fridays is, starts being the day that you make his favorite food. Start Fridays starts being the day you take him to special places and see if you can solve this problem with the, with the class. But yeah, we're often not aware of it. Or we just don't think it's, we just don't take it seriously. We think it's a small thing. 
you, you, know, you just don't know. If you yell at a child while they're chanting Japa, will you create a negative trigger or not? You might, you might not. It doesn't always create a trigger. But you have to notice, and if a child is saying, what day is it today? You know, then you, oh, okay, we have a problem. Is it Japa talk? So that's why I teach this. Because this is, we all know about this, right? But we don't, we don't think about it. We don't think about how we're responsible to create this. What, to, what triggers can be used to make this class serious? None of the students in my VPS take this seriously at all. All right, well, those, that's another subject. That really isn't triggers at all. That's another subject. To take something seriously, and I don't have time to cover this in depth at all. To take something seriously, it has to be related to two things. Something you need, and something that something you feel you need, and something that you're taught how to use in your real life. So, yesterday I taught a class about sadhana with children. Were any of you there for that? Who was there for that? A few of you. So we talked in that class, what do children want? You know, so if you think about what do your students want? Not what do you know that they need, but what do they think that they need? Which are not exactly the same thing. So you may say, well, my children really need to learn Bhagavad Gita slokas, but they probably don't wake up in the morning saying, I really need to learn a Bhagavad Gita sloka. They wake up in the morning saying, you know, I'd really like a Gulabjuman, or I'd really like to get a new toy, or I hope that my, you know, red shirt is clean and I can wear it this morning. Or I hope my sister doesn't steal my shoes again. <laughs> or whatever, you know, I hope daddy's in a good mood. I mean, whatever their, their life problems are today, and especially children are very much today, or right now. So if you can't relate what you're teaching to what the children are needing right now, they're not going to be very motivated. And if you can connect it, they will be very motivated. It's very simple. That's why I asked you first why you're here. Does that make sense? The most effective teaching is where you take what people are thinking that they need and you show them how what you're teaching will help them to get what they need, if not on an immediate level, on a deeper level. And if what you're teaching isn't going to help them get what they need, then I would ask, why are you teaching? So if Krishna consciousness has nothing to do with getting along with your brothers and sisters and your mother and father and your in-laws, if Krishna consciousness has nothing to do with having fun, if Krishna consciousness has nothing to do with being a good student and getting good grades, if Krishna consciousness has nothing to do with security, then why should you pay any attention to it, honestly? You won't. 
you may pay attention to it because it's your religion or it's your culture or because your mother and father are telling you to go to the class, but it, it, you won't really give it your attention. You know, we were driving today trying to find Radhika's house. So I need to stop several times and ask people for directions. So was she listening or not? When she asked somebody, how do I get there? Was she listening to the answer? Yes or no? Why was she listening? She needs to reach the place. It's meeting a need. If I want to know how to get to Radhika's house, I'm lost. And I ask somebody, where is such and such street? And they tell me, take a right, take a left, go to the end of the street, take the first right. I'll be really listening. And I'll, I'll really make an effort to remember it. Okay, I think Whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to make a picture in my mind. I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to be very focused. Because I need the information. If you don't need the information, why should you pay attention? If I give a class right now on the train schedule from here to Mumbai, you won't remember anything because you don't need that information. It doesn't do anything for you. So our, in theory, what we say we believe, we, we say we believe that Krishna consciousness will solve all of your problems. That's what we say we believe, right? Well, you have to show that. Which means you have to start from people's real problems. So, you know, just imagine children who want to come to your BPS, who are begging to come. They can't stay away. They're asking their parents to come. So then you're going to listen to something because that's what you want. But if there's no connection between what you want and what I'm saying, why should you pay attention? You may sit there formally because we've all been trained as children how to pretend that we're listening. That's one of the main things that every society teaches its children. How to sit politely and pretend you're listening. And it's one of the few things we actually learn in school. And many times the teacher doesn't even know. So if you don't know how teaching the slokas is going to help your children with the problems they have today, if you don't know, then why should the children learn it? Okay, children, we're going to learn. Open up your Bible. Get it. If you want your children to be hungry for what you have to teach them, then it's got to meet some need that they have. So that means thinking beforehand. Okay, I have this thing in my syllabus. What does this have to do with my children's lives? 
Does learning that you're not this body, does that help you in life? It should. It should help you in life. But but you got to show that. And it's not just explaining it. It doesn't mean you just get up and say, okay, children, the reason we're learning this first today is if you understand that you're not this body, then you're going to be detached from the pains and pleasures of this world. Okay, so listen up. That's not going to really work either. Because what you're looking for is you're looking for an emotional connection, not an intellectual connection. Intellectual connection isn't enough. You want, the, you want your children to buy what you're selling. So you, you've got to be an expert salesperson. So what do the salespeople do? The salespeople, they, they connect almost anything to people's basic desires for eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. Right? They connect their product to, a, to you're going to feel secure, you're going to have a happy family. You know, buy this laundry detergent and you'll have a happy family. <laughs> right? Don't they do that? They show the picture. Of, oh, there's this big sign in Vrindavan of husband, wife, and, and son and daughter. Everyone is beautiful, of course, and smiling, radiant skin, and they're wearing um, long underwear for the cold. You don't buy that here in Chennai. But. So they're basically shot, you know, buy our underwear and you'll have a happy family. <laughs> and that's how they sell their products. Seriously. They take things that people want. People want a happy family. They want security. They want status. A lot of the ways they sell things like cars. Cars, watches, certain things. If you, if you buy this, you'll get a higher status in your community. So frankly, we have to do the same thing. Except for us, it should be real because it is real. It is real that if you develop Krishna consciousness, you can be happy in all situations. It doesn't mean your father-in-law will stop yelling at you. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that if I chant Hare Krishna, it's going to act like black magic, and my father-in-law will all of a sudden be a nice man. But what it does mean is that when he's yelling at me, I won't be disturbed. I'll have compassion. So Krishna consciousness does solve your problems. It solves your relationship problems. It solves your money problems. It doesn't mean you get more money. It means you learn to be happy and satisfied and peaceful with whatever Krishna is giving you. You learn to appreciate what you have. I mean, why do people want more money? Because, you know, everybody always wants more money. Did you know that? There's studies that show however much money you have, you always want 10% more. And then you get that, then you want 10%. So why do people want more money? They're thinking it'll bring them more security, more peace. But Krishna consciousness gives you peace. If you already have peace, you don't need more money anymore. Already gives you security, because you know, I'm not this body. I can't be hurt. I can't be hurt by any weapon. I don't die. 
Nobody can insult me. So you get peace. So Krishna consciousness really does solve all problems. Not in a materialistic way. It's not that by... That's the way that people think. They think if I'm religious, then, you know, we went to the... What's it? Asta Lakshmi? Asta Lakshmi. So this Lakshmi is going to give me wealth, and this Lakshmi is going to give me elephants, and what the Gaja Lakshmi gives you. You know, so that each Lakshmi, this Lakshmi is going to give me children. So that's why people generally are religious. That's okay. They're children. They can make noise. It's all right. That's their dharma. To make a mess and to make noise. It's all right. So that's why people are religious. They're thinking, if I worship God, then everything in my life will just be exactly the way I want it. Of course, that won't bring you what you want anyway. Even if you have beauty and health and fame and wealth and strength and knowledge, even if you have all the six opulences, if you're not Krishna conscious, you're still going to be unhappy. Otherwise, every rich, famous, beautiful, wealthy, smart person would be in ecstasy, and they're not. There's a lot of unhappy, rich, famous, smart, beautiful, wise persons. So my point is what we're teaching in Krishna consciousness does solve our children's problems. But you've got to present it in such a way that they really feel that that's true and that's got to be done on an emotional level. Which means that you have to think about what's the relationship. First of all, you've got to think about what, what do my children want and need? What do they think they want to need? Not just what I think they need. What do they think they need? Okay, they think they need their parents to stop yelling at them, their brothers and sisters to stop taking their toys, they need better grades, they need the newest shoes. You know, you can make a list of what your children need and if you don't, or what they think they need. And if you don't know, you know what, you can ask them. You can ask the children you teach, you know, What's really bothering you in your life? If you could have one thing fixed in your life, what could it be? You can ask them this anonymously if they're old enough to write. You can ask them to write this down. And I've done this uh, with adults in this month. So I've gone to home programs where I didn't know anybody. And I just, I passed around papers and I said, everybody take a paper and write down what is my biggest doubt in Krishna consciousness. What's the biggest problem in my life? What's the thing in Krishna consciousness I have the most difficulty following? And it's interesting because sometimes people write down what they think they're supposed to write down. Like, my biggest problem is I don't love Radha and Krishna. And I, I, I don't think most people wake up and just say that. Maybe some devotees, probably some devotees. Probably not most devotees wake up and go, I really got to love Radha and Krishna today. Most people are waking up thinking, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay for my child's education? I have some customer at work who's really bothering me. You know, my mother-in-law doesn't like the way that I cook the sambar, and she's going to yell at me again today. <laughs> so that's usually the, the kind of things that are weighing on our mind. So you want to find out from the children what, what's their anxieties, what's their desires. And then you look at what you're teaching. You can do that even once a year, twice a year. Try to find out from your children. Get to know your children. And then look at what you're teaching and see how it's connected. And if you don't see how it's connected, how will the children see how it's connected? 
Okay, we're going to do a drama for a lot of this thing today, but what does that have to do with doing well on my exams? If you don't know what the connection is, if you don't know why you're teaching, why would anybody else pay attention? Of course, when I explain this, I have teachers who, not of Krishna consciousness, but when I explain this to academic teachers, many of them will come and say, well, we are teaching useless things. But at least if you're teaching Krishna consciousness, nothing should be useless that you're teaching. Why are you teaching this particular sloka? Why are you teaching these prayers? Why are you teaching this drama? Why are you teaching this color? At least you should know. For every single thing you're teaching, how it will help your children today. Not just how it will help your children in 20 years, because none of your children are even thinking about 20 years, really, unless they're at least 15 years old. They're just not. They can't. They can't. They're just thinking about right now. So how is it going to help your children right now? And to, to be as convincing as the advertisers. So how to do that, that's, I, I don't have enough time to explain that. I'm just giving you some little idea. And the other thing is that whatever you teach, you should be teaching for application. You should be teaching for using. So I make an effort in every one of my classes, whether it's a, a Bhagavatam class or whether it's a class like this, that I always go to the practical. How can you use the knowledge I'm teaching? What can you do with it? Not just theory. And what can you do with it today? How can you apply this in your life today? So whatever you teach should be like that. What are you going to do with this? What use is it? Now, if you're teaching something that really solves people's problems and that they can use, they will keep coming back. Don't we all do that? If someone's teaching something that really meets, that solves my problems and that I can use, then I'm going to keep coming and learning from that person. I've heard so many wonderful classes in the Hare Krishna movement that had nothing to do with anything in my life and nothing to do with anything I could use. They may have been entertaining and they may have been well presented and they may have been with all Shastric references, but they had nothing to do with my life. And often I had to work. I, I read an article in the uh, Sankirtan newsletter this would be about 33 years ago. Saying, one, one sannyasi was right. He said, every Bhagavatam class I go to, I think about how can I apply this to my life. So I read that and I thought, okay, I'm going to do that tomorrow. So I went to the class the next day. It was given by the temple commander. And he said... The way to advance in Krishna consciousness is to surrender to your immediate authority in the temple. So for most of the devotees, that was him. You know, of the 300 devotees in the temple room, for 270 of them, that was him. 
So I was sitting there just thinking, okay, because we were we were grahastas. I was living a few blocks from the temple. He, this man wasn't my authority. I didn't really have any authority in the temple. And I thought, what does this have to do with me? And then I thought, okay, I read that article saying I should try to apply this to my own life. So I'm really going to try. And then all of a sudden I thought, oh, it's my husband. <laughs> I thought my immediate authority is my husband. And that, that class changed my life. After that, I thought my husband is my temple president. It made my life a lot easier. Well, there were many, many times I thought he was my temple president. <laughs> I can understand, this is my service. This is something I, I, I repeat a lot, that we should really think of our grahasta life as our service, not that I'm in grahasta life for my own sense gratification. So I can have some adoring husband who's like, yes, dear, I worship your feet, whatever you want. I'm totally in love with you, you know. But that's not, probably that is why we're in grahasta life, but that's... That's, that's not going to make us happy because our husbands will probably only do that once every 10 years maybe. <laughs> you know? But if I'm thinking, well, he's, my, he's my authority. He's my temple president. This is the, I'm supposed to work with him. I'm supposed to work under his authority to please Krishna. I'm supposed to serve him to please Krishna. So then it becomes nice. Okay. But anyway, we shouldn't be like that as teachers. My reason for giving this example is that person who gave class, he wasn't really thinking how everybody would have, maybe he was thinking that he wanted everyone to apply it by surrendering to him. I know, I, I, I've heard so many people, maybe this doesn't happen in South India, I've heard so many people give Bhagavatam class where they say, so we were all born in low families. And I'm thinking, there's all these children here, they weren't born in low families. Maybe they don't preach like that here in South India. But, you know, I'm thinking not everybody was born in a low family. So the person giving the class, they're not thinking about who is their audience. How are people going to apply things? So you as the, you as the teacher, you shouldn't make your students do what I had to do. That they have to sit there, okay, what, what am I supposed to do with this knowledge? What does it have to do with me? How can I use it? You should help them to show them how they can use it. What good is, is it for them? I mean, I'm sure you know, thinking about triggers is going to help you not just as a teacher, but also as a parent, and as a wife, and as a devotee. You can think not only about what triggers you're setting up for your students, or your children, or your husband, or your friends, or the other devotees at the temple, but what triggers you're setting up for yourself. And this has to do with something I told you yesterday. I was, uh, one time one lady came up to me and said, I'm really having trouble finishing my japa. She said, it's gotten so bad that whenever I think about my japa, I feel guilty. So what had happened to this woman? Somebody tell me, what, what happened to this woman? What did she, she did it to herself. What did she do? 
Joppa became a negative trigger. How did it happen? What did she do to make Joppa a negative trigger? She was forced. I mean, she didn't uh, like She didn't like Jenton. But how do you think it happened? I mean, we don't know exactly, but how do you think it happened? Maybe she made some focus Okay, so maybe she was trying to force herself to do well, and she didn't do well. What, what was she thinking about when she thought about Joppa? She was thinking over guilty. No, she was uh, she was always thought that she should complete 16 rounds regularly. So that made her uh, more pressure. pressure. More pressure. So if she is not competing, she will be there some sin or some... And then what happened, maybe one day she didn't complete, and then she felt really guilty. And pretty soon she started associating Jaffa with feeling guilty, and that made it harder and harder and harder for her to chant. So I asked her that day, please listen very carefully. I said to her, how many rounds have you chanted today? She said, I have four left. <laughs> so do you understand what she's doing to herself? What is she what is she focusing on? No, no. No, she's focusing on the negative negative. She's focusing on the negative. So she chanted twelve rounds. That's very good. How many people on the planet are chanting twelve rounds? Out of six billion people on the planet, most of them are not chanting one round. She chanted 12 rounds. So instead of saying, I chanted 12 rounds, she said, I have four rounds. <laughs> so she was, she was emotionally, she, her focus was on the negative. Every time she chanted, she was probably thinking, oh, I just spaced out. Oh, I didn't chant that round nicely. Oh, I did this wrong. I did that wrong. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. And she started associating chanting with feeling bad, with feeling guilty. So then, of course, is she going to want to chant? No. Who wants to do something that makes you feel guilty? Nobody. And then, of course, it, it, it builds on itself. If I start feeling guilty and then I don't want to chant, because then I don't want to chant because I feel guilty. And then I don't finish my chanting. Then I feel guilty that I didn't finish my chanting. And then I feel bad. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So she had created a strong negative. Chanting had become a strong negative trigger. And she did that to herself. Nobody else did it to her. It wasn't any other circumstance. She created it. So I told her the same thing I told you yesterday. I said, what you should do is whatever chanting you do, you should celebrate it. We're afraid to do that. We think, well, if I celebrate 12 rounds, then I'll be satisfied with 12 rounds. No, it doesn't work like that. If you celebrate 12 rounds, then chanting will become a positive trigger for you, and you'll want to chant more. If you say, oh, of my 16 rounds today, I heard five mantras nicely. Very nice. I was attentive for five mantras. Very nice. Maybe tomorrow I'll be attentive for seven or eight mantras. Then 
then you feel encouraged. This is, this is what we do with very young children with walking and talking. When the child, why well, I was giving this example, when the child just stands up one time, we celebrate. We don't criticize them for falling. When they're trying to talk, when they just say, you know, like, something. Moo, moo, moo. Oh, you mean moon? Oh, very good. Yes, it's moon. We don't say, who said that wrong? We focus on the positives. Otherwise, probably no child would ever learn how to walk or talk. So anyway, we, triggers are something important we do for ourselves also. And this is true if you want to stop eating too much. By the way, same thing. If you have a lot of guilt about food, you, you actually create the problem. If you have guilt every time you eat too much, oh, I ate too much, oh, I ate too much. You want to do the other thing. You want to celebrate when you don't eat too much. So it's something that you, that, that you can use immediately. And, and it's interesting if you look at how Srila Prabhupada dealt with the devotees. If you look at how the Shastra is geared toward the devotee, you'll see it's geared toward the positive. It's geared toward creating positive triggers. And if, as I say, like cultures with, the, with celebrations, with festivals. So in all of your teaching, you want to do that. In all of your teaching, you want to show how, this, how what you're teaching is going to solve the immediate problems of your students. And you want to give them a way to use what you're teaching immediately. And the more you can do that, the more attentive the students will be and the less behavior problems you'll have, the more people will want to come, people will be knocking down your doors to come to your classes. And the more your teaching is removed from people's real needs and real use, the less anybody will want to pay any attention to them. I mean, if you want to talk about a really positive trigger, you know, if I, if I learn something that solves a, a, a serious problem that I've had and that I can use and it works, well, that knowledge has become a very positive trigger for me. Now, this really solves my problems. So I, I'm challenging you as teachers to think about why we're teaching what we're teaching and how, how does Krishna consciousness solve the immediate problems of my children. And if you say, well, I don't know how it does it, then, you know, you're in trouble. I don't know why I'm teaching this. I don't know what good it will do for you. Maybe it won't do you any good. Useless knowledge. Well, whoa. <laughs> why should your students be interested? You know, it... We, if you want to say one word that describes school, what is the one word that describes going to school? If you're going to take one word that describes, we all went to school, right? Some of us are maybe still in school. So if we're going to pick one word, what word would you pick to describe school? Knowledge. Fun. You had fun in school. Exactly. Wow, I want to go to your school. <laughs> you found happiness in school. Yeah, most of the things are better to be friends. in the school than at home. 
You'd rather be in the school than at home? No, they want to be in the school rather than at home. They would. They like school. Friends are both in Yeah, I always mother is Oh, wow. I want to find out what kind of schools you have here in Tamil. Yeah, nowadays the children like to go to school. They like to go to school. They don't like to come home. Once upon a time, we didn't like to go to school. So school is all, it's just fun. Yes, yes. Wonderful. Really? Teacher will not call. Wow. Is this really true? Yes, yes, yes. really true. What kind of schools do you have here? <laughs> spend some more time here and study your education system. <laughs> this is the first place I've been in the world that I ever heard anything like that. Usually people say about schools boring. They believe their teacher, they have faith on their teacher. Even if they write the spelling wrong, they will tell our teacher told that only that will be that. Usually people say school is boring. The schools here are not boring. What do you do in the schools here? <laughs> so you should all be teaching me then. So what do you do in the schools here? There's a academy and they have their PhD and library and they can Practical. Lots of activities. Lots of activities. And they have multi-media presentation and they show everything. Wow. Main point is teachers are loving to them. Oh, very nice. You should be teaching the rest of India. Because <laughs> most of the schools I visit in India are not fun. They're usually just somebody saying something and all the children just repeat. Maybe government schools are not fun. It involves a lot of interaction. Really? Wow. I'm very happy here. Because, yeah, I've been to a lot of schools in India. It's usually just all the children sitting at their desk. And the teacher is saying, we pack our clothes in a suitcase. We pack our clothes in a suitcase. <laughs> That's all I've ever seen in Indian schools. So, Tamil, that, no wonder you're all so educated. That's really nice. I notice you're all very well educated here. Nowadays, the education system is changing. The students will learn the lesson earlier and they will ask the questions to the teacher. So the teacher has to be very alert. Wow. So now you have to go and teach the rest of your country. It's not like that in other places. What sort of system do you use here for teaching in schools? Your state board is really good then. So they have a lot of interactive teaching and multimedia, critical thinking and fun activities. Wow. A lot of projects. Seminars. They have take seminars. We have debates. Really? Yeah. So they're not just sitting and memorizing. No, no, not Favorite destination for people from North India, especially they want their kids to 
That's really nice. So that's why all of you speak English and you're all like getting PhDs in mathematics. <laughs> Very nice. So maybe what we should do in North India is send our teachers here for training. I'm, I'm serious. Because I'm trying to train some teachers in North India and it's very frustrating. But even I went to some schools in other places in South India, other states, I was, and it was just like, just teachers standing and talking and children repeating. All right, so we'll take a, a break. I have another class starting here, right? When does the other class start? Seven. Seven, okay, so let's take a break. Thank you, Hare Krishna. Thank you.